by God's grace, and if it is in his timing, then we will conclude a 10-message series this morning on evangelism. As you know, the commission of the church is to share the gospel. It's to disciple those among all nations and baptize them and teach them to obey Jesus' commands. That's the mission or the, the commission of the church. It's what we are to do. It's that in which we are to be involved on a moment-by-moment, heart-filled basis. This morning, this is the culmination of what we have referred to as a doctrinal study, the doctrine of evangelism. Doctrine's not a bad word. It's not a big word. It simply means teaching. It's a more systematized word. It's uh, a word that actually is in the Bible. You and I are called to be devoted to sound doctrine. I, as a teacher, am called to teach sound doctrine and, by the way, to refute false doctrine. That is one of the roles of a shepherd, is to protect sheep from wolves who teach things that are not true and therefore deceive and lead them down a dark and desperate and destructive path. So the doctrine of evangelism is a crucial thing. There's a sense in which this is forging the way for our church for the next many decades. However, the Lord will keep us on the earth and however long we will await his return. That is the time during which we hope that this series, this 10-message series, will serve as a foundation for understanding what the Scripture says about evangelism. And today, we arrive at the capstone. Man's practice. Man's practice. What then does he do? What then are you to do in evangelism? We've worked our way up to this point for this purpose, for this very day, that we would look at what most Christians would consider to be the premier text on biblical Christian evangelism. And although your bulletin says we're going to begin with verse 18, we're actually going to begin with verse 16. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. Father, we pause for a moment, giving you thanks for the place where you now have brought us, having looked at your perspective in evangelism and now closing out what we believe to be the necessary perspective of man in evangelism. That we would not only know and understand, but that we would subject ourselves to your perspective. That you, in fact, are a God of sovereign grace. The call upon our lives is to live in such a way as would reflect the person of Jesus Christ. So that we then would have the credibility to proclaim the authority of Jesus Christ. So we ask, Father, that you would help us now to think clearly, to be of sharpness of mind, clarity of thought, softness of heart, and greatness of passion for your glory, that your bride, your son's bride, be delivered unto him for your glory. Amen. 
Under the authority of Jesus Christ, we are to baptize, disciple, and teach others so that they will obey Him who is always present. That's our text this morning in a nutshell. That's the deal. Under the authority of Jesus Christ, we're to baptize, disciple, and teach others so that they will obey Him who is always present. Point number one, be ready. Be ready. If you look there at verse 16, you see that the disciples were ready. They were available. They showed up. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. I, I say to you, I say to myself, show up. Be taught. Know what is necessary to be engaged in biblical evangelism. Know the plan. Know the purpose. Know what God's pleasure is in. Understand the biblical prayer of the evangelist. Understand the biblical mandate on the evangelist's life. The disciples did as they were instructed. Back in verses 7 to 8, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were told by the angel who had rolled away the stone, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. What are they reporting? They're reporting the resurrection, the power of evangelism. Here's why. In verses 3 to 4, his appearance, the angel, was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The command to be engaged in evangelism should shake you and me to the core. There should be a healthy, spirit-filled fear in us with regard to God's condemnation of the lost. You ought not to personally live in fear of God's wrath, the possibility or the probability that God would pour His wrath out upon you. If you're in Christ, God poured His wrath out in full on His Son. You don't live in fear of that, but you ought to examine the reality that the fear that is struck in the hearts of these ladies as they stood in the presence of this angel said, we must tell others. We must go to the disciples. We must be obedient to what we're being told. Why? Because the angel represents the great awe of the Lord. The awesomeness of God is exhibited in this angel. And they feared him. The guards certainly feared him. And they feared him so that they shook like dead men. Essentially, they fell apart at the seams. Recognize the greatness of God as manifest in this angel. But also in verse 10, when Jesus met the Marys on the road, he said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. A very clear, direct command. Go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. And so they did, and the disciples obeyed, and they showed up ready to be taught. 
1 Peter 3, verse 15, as you know, says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, and with gentleness and reverence. That's why you're here. Can you think of it that way? Can you shift gears if that hasn't been your mindset? That really the reason you are here is not simply to exalt God. Yes, that is the primary purpose. It is also not simply to be involved in the equipping of the saints, which includes you. But it is ultimately that you would exalt God and that you would be involved in the equipping of the saints, that you would share the gospel, being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for you to give an account for the hope that is within you and to do so with gentleness and reverence. I believe wholeheartedly that that is really the, the expression of the heart of our church. If you're involved in our church, if you're devoted to the ministries of our church, then, then that's where your heart is. It's where my heart is. But we must be certain that we recalibrate from time to time, that we really stop and think about whether or not whatever efforts in evangelism we're engaging in are truly the result of this. Is this why we are involved in evangelism? And is this why we are here? Are we here to be taught? Are we here to be readied, to be prepared? This is why the disciples showed up. They were obeying him. They were obeying his command to be there in Galilee so I can give you your marching orders. Number two, worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. Verse 17 says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. In other words, the very reality of the person of Jesus Christ establishes a dividing line between those who are committed to evangelism and those who are not, which, by the way, is the same uh, two groups of people, one not devoted to Jesus Christ and the other devoted to him. Truly, if you are devoted to Jesus Christ, you are devoted to evangelism. That may have been obscured over time. Your life may have gotten unnecessarily too busy for you to even stop and think about how your life ought to reflect the person of Jesus Christ. But deep within you, if the Spirit of God resides, He has brought to you the great desire to communicate the truth to others by which you have been saved. You don't want them to experience the wrath of God. You know that the angel in this text is, as I said, a reflection of the greatness of God. And so the message, go to the disciples, tell them to show up so that they would be readied, is also a message that you and I must embrace. And how will we respond when we arrive at that place where this edifying, this equipping is going on? We will worship Jesus. That song we sang this morning, just really a rich expression of the character of Jesus Christ given to us as an opportunity to proclaim with one another and back to him not for the sake of the unbeliever in this context that's not why we gather but that we would exalt him and that we would be equipping the saints with solid theology set to music that we can sing that's why we do that we worship him he is worthy this is what the disciples did they worshiped him but some doubted and certainly, there will be those within the church who doubt. I didn't say there will be Christians who doubt. I said that there will be those within the church who doubt. The Bible says there will be tares among the wheat. Now, don't be too concerned if you think that I'm saying that Christians don't ever doubt their faith, that Christians don't ever doubt their uh, salvation, they don't ever doubt their faithfulness. But this is not what we're talking about at this point. 
What we're talking about at this point is the point at which the person of Jesus Christ has been faithfully and effectively communicated. The believer falls to his knees. As one charismatic leader said sometime back, Jesus meets him every morning in the bathroom while he's shaving. The response John MacArthur gave to that man when he said that was, do you keep shaving? How ludicrous. How blasphemous. Were you and I to be in the presence of Jesus Christ, we would fall to our feet like dead men in fear. And with the opportunity that we have to have some sliver of heaven brought down to us, that in this context, we have excellence in music, excellence in theology, for the purpose of worshiping Jesus Christ. You come to be taught, you come to worship. That's what the disciples did. That's what we're to do. The disciples weren't doubting at this point, but oh, they had, and oh, they did, and oh, they would, but not in this moment. Not in his presence. You and I don't have his physical presence, but he does tell us that he is with us. He is with us to the end of the age. If you're a believer, Jesus does, in a sense, reside in your heart, not because you asked him to come in, but because he, by his authority, did come in. So he is with you. You ought to worship him everywhere you go. Your every act, your every breath, your every word, your every deed, everything you do ought to be thought of as an act of worship because it is, and it really ought to be singularly directed to the person of Jesus Christ. You and I ought to worship Him. And one thing that does happen, you know this, when you come here, when you gather with believers, what happens is you are stimulated to worship more. You love Jesus Christ more because truth is presented. You are surrounded by people who love truth. They love Jesus Christ. You hear music that exalts Him. So you, not just, you don't just enjoy that. You are stimulated to think about Him. And so in that moment, you find rest. You find joy, you find peace, you find thanksgiving that escapes you when you get to work at 8 o'clock on Monday or whatever. So what do you do? You remind yourself of the truths in which you have determined to saturate your life. The Marys had the same response when he met them on the road in verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. You know what it takes to grab someone's feet. You got to get on your knees. And this was their response to him having an honest, real perspective of who he is. They fell apart. They dropped to their knees. They found him to be great. They knew him to be worthy of worship. You know, it's a dead giveaway when someone shows no interest in the person of Christ that even if he has the appearance of an evangelistic interest, he's not doing evangelism. It must be rooted in and derived from one's love for Jesus Christ. By the way, the Great Commission is not the Great Commandment. Right? The Great Commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Great Commission is congruous with the second greatest commandment, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. That would include evangelism. But first, you must love Jesus Christ. 
Revelation 5, verse 8 says, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, the one who took the book. They fell down before him. The text goes on to say, Each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. I know you love Jesus Christ. But my call to you and to me is that we would find Him to be good. That we would think primarily of Him. Without question, there are distractions in your heart this morning. There are distractions before your eyes this morning. There are things that are not as you would like them. And some of them are justified. And others are not. As you know, you've heard me say before, there are bad distractions and there are good distractions and there's some we're not sure about, but they're distractions. Don't let a distraction distract you. Be devoted to worshiping Jesus Christ. You've got troubles in your life? Join the club, right? I don't mean to say that heartlessly. The reality is all people have troubles, all people have discouragements. Yours may be weighty, in this moment. Yours may be of such difficulty that you can't seem to comprehend how it's even remotely possible that God could change the circumstances in such a way that would make things okay, much less good or great. Do you recall the reality that Jesus Christ is worthy of your worship and the person who is involved in biblical evangelism is so because of the greatness of Jesus Christ? Point number three, submit to Jesus' authority. Submit to His authority. You ought not only to be ready as the disciples, ready and able, not just worshiping Jesus Christ, but acknowledging and submitting to His authority. Verse 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is one case where all means all. The con- Why do we know that? Because of the context. All means all of something in every context, but not all of everything in every context. In this context, it means all of everything. There's no qualifier. He has all authority. And just this very reality should lead to a gratitude in our hearts that says, because he is authoritative, I am not and I was not. I did not make him Lord. He is Lord. I did not have the authority to make him do anything. As we looked at last week from 1 Peter 3, we are to set him apart as Lord in our hearts. But we are not making him Lord. We are acknowledging that he is Lord. He is, and he alone is the one with all authority. Matthew 10, verse 1 says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, this isn't a side note. This is what I'm about to say is crucial to this text and to what we're talking about this morning. There are those who will say and believe that there are those who currently have the gift of healing. 
They do not have this gift of healing, which is the only gift of healing in the Bible. The gift of healing in the Bible always resulted in a full and complete healing. The person who says to you, so-and-so healed my back by praying over me and my leg grew three and a half inches. I watched it happen. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. And find out whether or not that person has other difficulties health-wise. Find out whether or not that person has that difficulty health-wise. And stay tuned to see whether or not that person expires. Whether or not they will actually die. Why is it that if this gift of healing is still in existence that people are still dying? Why is it that those with the gifts of healing are not going to hospitals and doing everything they can to, in fact, engage in what they think their spiritual gift is? This was the result of Jesus' authority, and he established it for a time with a selective group of people, the apostles. He gave this gift to the apostles, and when it was given, every kind of disease and every kind of sickness was healed. Not a smattering of them for the sake of some spectacle. In Matthew 7, verses 28 to 29, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. You know the difference between teaching that, well, it's not authoritative and teaching that is. Here, it says, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. He was teaching as one who has authority. This is the authority that he proclaims to have in our text this morning in Matthew 28. He has that authority and therefore he taught with that authority. In the same way, he extends that command to those who teach the word of God. In Titus 2 verse 15, Paul says to Titus, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That's not to say that the preacher or the teacher himself has that authority, but he, in fact, represents the authority of Jesus Christ. And what, what does that look like? It looks like a willingness to teach these things as if they're true, because they are, because they are given to us by the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. So we proclaim his word out of a willingness to honor and not offend him, and a willingness not so much to honor or be concerned about offending man. Many of the things that I will say to you from the perspective of a, of a preaching venue will be offensive. My role is to deliver it with truth and in love and in kindness, not to water it down, not by any means to sugarcoat it, but to say it in such a way that is reflective of what's there. That's the authority of Jesus Christ. It's not my authority. I have no disillusions about any authority that I might have. I don't have that authority. The authority is in Jesus Christ and in His Word, and He proclaims that it is. And therefore, as you and I understand the Word of God, we can speak it with confidence. It doesn't mean speaking it with a lack of kindness or a lack of love. It means saying it with boldness and clarity passion. Matthew 21, verse 23, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? 
And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people. For they all agreed, John is a prophet. In answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, because you have no business knowing. You don't have ears to hear. You don't have eyes to see. Your hearts are hard, and you couldn't possibly understand it. And therefore, I'm not even going to tell you where this authority is from. You ought to know. You ought to know. In John 5, verse 26, For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself, and He gave Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. In John 10, verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. That's incredible authority. That's truly unique, exclusive authority. No one has the authority to lay down his own life, much less take it up. Jesus did. And then interestingly, in John 19, John 19, verse 10, So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus explains here why he was confident in not responding to Pilate's questions. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And so, Pilate thinks he has authority. He does have authority. But it's sub-authority. It's subordinate authority. And it's temporary and ultimately, Jesus will exercise authority over Pilate and all men. In Jude 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is Jude's declaration of the reality that Jesus Christ is in fact the one who deserves glory, who deserves majesty, who deserves dominion, who deserves authority, and has had them all before all time and now and forever and always will. Amen. You, you and I need to rest in the reality that sharing the gospel is not only to be done then because of Jesus' authority to command it, but resting in his authority to authenticate it. We are not to simply be involved in evangelism because Jesus' authority has commanded it, but because Jesus' authority will authenticate it. If you and I are engaged in genuinely biblical evangelism, it is under and by the authority of the God-man who has all authority in heaven and on earth. You don't tell people to believe in Jesus because of your credibility. It's because of His power and control of all things. His authority is the basis upon which we rest when we tell people what we tell them. Point number four. 
Disciple the nations. The first part of verse 19, Matthew 28, says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Uh, this is really not an imperative, this word uh, that's translated here as go. It's actually a participle. And so uh, the more technical or better translation would be while going, and even better, having gone. There is an assumption. Some translations translate it that way, by the way. Having gone, do these things. So as I said, there's an assumption that you will go. You remember the moment that you acknowledged the kindness of Jesus Christ in providing for you reconciliation to His Father, forgiveness for your sins, freedom from legalism, freedom from the wrath of God, the power of the resurrection moving on your heart. Now you have pure love in your heart. Pure love will be obscured, certainly, but in that moment you, you love Jesus Christ because He first loved you. And what do you want to do? You want to tell people, and not just generally. You know people that you want to tell. The invigoration of being saved results in the desire for other people to be saved. You long for their salvation. Your desire is for their salvation. And so your prayer is to God. The call upon our lives then is to go, and it is assumed that you will. It's not an option. The idea that there is a Christianity without evangelism is foreign to the Bible. And this really is the point at which uh, those involved in a venue where evangelism is not of highest priority, they ought to consider whether or not they're really involved in a church. Same is true, though, for the individual. And maybe it's because of a lack of teaching. Maybe it's because of bad teaching. Maybe it's because of no teaching. Maybe it's because you're brand new in the faith. But either way, the heart of the believer is to be stimulated by sound biblical teaching that they would not only be equipped to share the gospel, but that they would actually do it. That the, the willingness to go, the willingness to have gone, would be cultivated. It's there. The heart of the believer is that he wants discipleship, he wants to be involved in discipleship, and so he will go. You say, you know, I, I got limited funds, how am I going to go to all the nations? Well, we have a plan. Our church is just over two years old. We have a plan. We started with that plan when we started. We said from the beginning, we will be devoted to missions. Many of you know this, and Eric and I talk about it on a fairly regular basis. His desire is to be involved in ministry in the heart of San Bernardino. He said to me long ago, I want to plant a church in San Bernardino. He wasn't trying to get me to help him do that. This is before we knew we were going to plant a church. So when the time and resources allowed, we brought Eric on staff part-time, very part-time, so that he would be trained for the gospel ministry. He's attending the Master's Seminary so that he would be equipped to teach truth. You say, well, San Bernardino, that's hardly the uttermost end of the earth. It's a start. It's headed in the right direction. We say, what do you mean by that? Well, any direction would be the right direction. Anywhere from this point would be toward the end of the earth from here. You know, it's on the path. So that's where we're starting. We're starting somewhere. I think some might fault us for, for where we start. Maybe we don't, they would say we don't do enough. Well, we're doing something. 
We're doing what the Lord has called us to do, and we're trying to be faithful to that. But that call, as you know, to go to all the nations is really found all over the Scripture. But it is, as I said, a call to discipleship. Unfortunately, some people think of evangelism as if it's outside sales. I win them, you work them. I close the deal, you keep the deal. They want little or nothing to do with relationships, but everything to do with being thought of as the evangelist. It's not evangelism. These people are usually most critical of others who are being faithful to different giftedness, but not what they are doing. I sure wish we could get more people to come out here and do what we're doing. I don't know why they're not more faithful. I don't understand why they're not doing what I'm doing. I'm doing the right thing. They're not doing the right thing. Don't know what they're doing. They forget that the body of Christ is a body with many members and that there are varieties of effects but the same God who works all things in all persons. 1 Corinthians 12.6 Verse 7 says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I think the person who has that spirit, the person who has that attitude, look at what I'm doing, nobody else is doing it, aren't there more people? Clearly, he's not doing it for the common good. He must do it for the common good. Some are doing what they would call evangelism for their own glory. Simply that they would be known for what they do and other people are not willing to do. This doesn't excuse the person who's not involved in evangelism. We are all to be involved in evangelism. But we are all called to different manifestations of that. What is it, though, that we would do this in all the nations? Making disciples of all nations. In Acts 2, verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. I alluded to this earlier. Why? This was so that men among every nation, there are those who are elect among every nation. And so, the Word of God is delivered to those among every nation, and it started here at Pentecost. In Acts 10.34, Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Every nation. Acts 17, 24 at Mars Hill. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. This is what it is that God loves the whole world. It is not that he has a special love for every single person in the world. It is that among every nation, that love will be poured out in full among some. Revelation 5, verses 9 to 10, as well as Revelation 7, 9 to 10, Revelation 13, 7 through 9, reveal the reality. 
that there will be those saved among every tongue, tribe, and nation. Revelation, Revelation 5, 9-10, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 7, verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and people and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The beast of the sea is given authority over the nations in Revelation 13, 7-9. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. But that temporary authority was temporary. And it will be revoked in Revelation 14, verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The Lord Jesus Christ will prevail over the dragon, over the beast of the sea, and the temporary authority given to Satan will be taken away, and Jesus' glory will be proclaimed among the nations, and you and I are to be involved in that. We are to be involved in discipleship for that purpose. That's what the text says disciple the nations now where do you start you start here and this is the bedrock of all evangelism it is for you and i to be involved in each other's lives in a systematic strategic manner by which maturity is increasing so that we will in fact be equipped for biblical genuine evangelism too often there are those who take the cart without the horse And they're out there doing whatever with no persuasion from the Scripture, with no effort to understand what biblical evangelism is. And then there are those who have some persuasion and some instruction, but they want to do it their own way. call upon the biblical redeemed Christian is to disciple, to be involved in discipleship. There are those who want to disciple but don't want discipleship. Where did that come from? It doesn't come from the Bible. It is discipleship. And so we as a church said from the beginning, we will be devoted to discipleship. And we will say it repeatedly. If you are to be faithful in your involvement in the Anchor Bible Church, it's not just showing up on Sunday. It is regular and faithful involvement in a discipleship group. There is nothing in the Scripture 
that would allow for a person to be able to say, I'm genuinely devoted to Jesus Christ without faithful involvement in discipleship. It does not exist. You say, well, I'll get my discipleship in another church. Show me that idea in the Bible. One local church, when Paul wrote to local churches, he wrote to them as individual churches. A person who is without any effective involvement in evangelism, whether he's trying or not, if he's not devoted to the bedrock, anchor-like foundation of discipleship, he's missing the point and he's failing miserably. Number five, point number five. Baptize disciples. Disciples are to be baptized. Who who is to be baptized? Disciples are to be baptized. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Note here that it is one name. The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God. Three persons. Acts 2 verse 38. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? When the truth of the gospel pierced their hearts, their response was, now what? As you know, Peter's response clearly, verse 38, uh, starting with verse 37 actually. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter's response was quick and clear. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know this. You don't receive forgiveness as a result of being baptized. You are being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, because of the forgiveness of your sins. Water doesn't save anyone. But the command is, because you have been saved, because you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, because you are regenerate, now follow in obedience with an outward expression of what took place in the heart. That's what baptism is. It exhibits the reality that you have gone under, that you have died to self and been resurrected unto new life in Jesus Christ. And so water baptism symbolizes that. The word means to submerse, to be covered in water. And in verse 41, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Acts 10, verse 47, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. See, this is always the response of a disciple. A person who's not involved in discipleship, but he's got some connection with the church, he's got no interest in baptism. Why would he do that? Baptism is the, is the certain response of the person who says, I know the difference now. I had some involvement, but now I'm being discipled. So I want to declare, I want to proclaim the gospel in obedience to the command to be baptized. Number six, number six, we are to teach obedience. We're to teach obedience. The first part of verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. First John 2 verse 3 says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And so we teach 
obedience. We don't teach delayed obedience. We don't teach partial obedience. We teach obedience. We are, if we are to be involved in biblical evangelism, to teach people to observe all that Jesus Christ has commanded us. 1 Peter 1, verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. He wrote to them reminding them that they are to obey Jesus Christ. Do you think of that as your regular privilege and responsibility to obey the commands that Jesus Christ has given you in His Word? 1 Timothy 4, verse 10, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers, prescribe and teach these things. Again, Paul is saying to Timothy, we strive, we agonize over these things. So when we bring a message to you, we've worked hard to do what? To teach. For what purpose? Obedience of the listener. Not to the teacher. To Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is the devotion of our church. I spend a massive percentage of my time with men, training them to shepherd the flock of God. And one of the primary responsibilities of the man who would be faithful to Jesus Christ is that he would become a teacher of God's Word. So this is why in our discipleship, we've devoted ourselves to understanding how to approach the Bible with honesty, to break it down and to put it back together in a way that the listener can understand it by the power of the Spirit of God, not making it relevant but so that we teach it in a way that it reflects what God's original intent was for the original reader. Colossians 1, verse 28, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? That we might present every man complete in Christ. What does that mean? It means he's mature. He obeys the Bible. He's obedient to Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in verse 29 to say, For this purpose I also labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. On the other hand, in Romans 2, verse 8, But to those who are self, selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Wrath and indignation. You see... You see why, as a pastor, you see why you as a Christian are desperately concerned for the person that you see involving himself or herself in disobedience to the commands of Jesus Christ because certain wrath and indignation, it means hatred, righteous hatred from God is the certain expectation. It is imminent for the person whose life is devoted to disobeying Jesus Christ. The believer wants to obey Jesus Christ, and so those faithful to biblical evangelism teach obedience. That's what we teach. Point number seven. Point number seven. 
trust Jesus. Really, trust Jesus. The latter part of verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That extends beyond your earthly lifetime, by the way. Uh, There's no separation between you and Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Philippians 3, verse 12 tells us, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ laid hold of me. And therefore I press on to lay hold of that which He has set aside for me, which is Him. And so I cling to Him. You cling to Him. You trust Him when things fall apart. And if you don't, you have no business telling anybody about that subpar Jesus who's not worthy of being trusted. Philippians 1, verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. But friends, you can see how the person whose hope is rooted in a decision that they made is going to lose hope. He's not going to trust Jesus for his salvation. He's trusting himself to maintain his salvation. But Paul says here in Philippians 1, he who began that good work will perfect it. Not me. He's going to bring it to completion. So I trust him. Philippians 1, 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. In Philippians 4, really one of my favorite texts, one of the simplest texts in the Bible with regard to the benefits of trusting Jesus, the things that you can do without if you will genuinely trust Jesus. Listen to this. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. See, that's, a, that's really a red flag right there. If you're not rejoicing in Jesus, there are going to be issues. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, he repeats it. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. How much nearer can someone be when he is inside you? He is with you. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. Well, obviously, the minute you forget that he's near, the the minute you forget he indwells you, the minute you step aside from the reality that he is with you until the end of the age, what happens? Anxiety rushes, rushes in like a bull rush. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. You trust Him? And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A lot of people like to point out the fact that in Deuteronomy 31, we're told, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. 
For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. But earlier in this passage, it's interesting. You might not know this. Earlier in this chapter, we were told, verse 16, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be consumed, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. Don't camp on the passage that says, My God will never forsake me or leave me if you yourself are not devoted to obeying Jesus Christ and if you are not devoted to trusting Jesus Christ. The person who trusts Him obeys Him. And the person who can and should and really must proclaim this truth that God will not forsake Him nor ever leave Him is the person who finds himself trusting Jesus. If it is true about you that He will not forsake you, then you will trust Him. If you find yourself not trusting Him, repent of your having forsaken Him and distrusted Him and disobeyed Him and find yourself trusting Him. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. So again, under the authority of Jesus Christ, we're to baptize, disciple, and teach others so that they will obey Him who is always present. We're to be ready. We're to worship Jesus. We're to submit to His authority. We are to disciple the nations by beginning with those around us in our local church. We're to baptize believers. We're to teach obedience. And we're to trust Jesus. Father, we find deep satisfaction in the trustworthiness of our Savior. And as we go now to worship Him, we ask that You would help us to see the greater realities that You have called us to in our lives, starting with this greatest reality, that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that as a result, we would, in fact, effectively love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That we would take this most important message to the lost. That we would go making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us and remembering that He is with us always to the end of the age. Amen.